This is the AMA Los Angeles podcast. Welcome to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. I'm Joel Metzger. This is part one of a panel discussion at General Assembly in Santa Monica called How to Find and Retain New Customers. The panelists are Anil Punyapu, Senior Vice President of Sales at Cvent, Anne Convery, Founder of Speak Your Business, Elizabeth Prim, Industry Director at Twitter, and Sean Kelly, Head of Sales at Spotify. Let's join the discussion already in progress. So what we like to do is we like to inter- introduce each panelist one at a time and then ask them a question. Um, so my first uh, um, introduction is for Anne. Anne, can you give us your quick 30-second bio? I'm Anne Convery, and how many of you have ever told someone what you do and had that glazed eyeball response? <laughs> okay. I work with people and companies to uh, tell stories that literally light up the brain. So they get more, they connect with more clients and more customers more often. Okay, so Anne has delivered over 10,000 hours of professional training. Her clients have achieved triple growth. She's delivered winning presentations and appeared in media such as CNN, 60 Minutes, The Wall Street Journal. She's delivered over 150 speeches in Europe, the UK, because that's not part of Europe anymore, and and the US. She's been interviewed by uh, ABC TV, Presentations Magazine, and many other media. So she knows of what she speaks. So Anne, my first question to you is, what would you say is the most common mistake people make in their initial pitch for business? The most common mistake people make that I see is that people talk about what they do. I love the phrase, if, you're, if you want to sell someone Paris, don't sell them the plane, sell them Paris. And people talk about what they do and what your listeners and your audience want to hear is what's in it for them. And there's a huge gap and that's the biggest mistake that they make. Okay, Anil, you're next. Uh, I'm probably the person that you know least about, or my company over here. Uh, I'm with a company called Cvent. We are the leaders in meetings and event software, which is a B2B software that most corporations in the United States and across the world use to manage all their meetings and events. It sounds a little boring, but it's actually very exciting because you get to go to a lot of really fun events like Dreamforce and Open World and all the ones that uh, we actually run on our systems. So, uh, I have a similar question for you. Um, we all, we're all marketers in this room, um, and we know basically, but to win customers and, and build uh, deeper and more valuable relationships, um, brands need to deliver value um, every time they interact. So, how can marketers consistently provide a quality of service and retain long-term happy customers? Right, so I'm going to switch that topic around a little bit, right? Uh, a lot of people believe that um, the product and the service delivery really drives the value to customers. Um, there's an HBS uh, review that basically says that if you had to take the four key components that customers care about from the buying experience, from the buying perspective, it's obviously product and service delivery. Um, there is the price to value ratio to the brand and brand value, and the fourth one is the buying experience. Buying experience is 53% in terms of the value. 
So we all think product delivery and the other uh, pro uh, the value to price ratio is 9% and the other two are 19% each. So it tells you that it's not the service delivery, it's not the brand, it's the buying experience. So how you focus on that buying experience and how you enhance that buying experience is the role of the marketer and that's what's going to drive the decision on a daily basis. Excellent, thank you, Neil. Sean, quick bio. Sure, um, for the last, I don't know, 17, 18 years, I've been in the advertising in industry, working for a lot of, uh, I've worked for cable networks, I've worked for MCNs, you mentioned MCM earlier, um, social media, programmatic video, um, proud to say I'm with Spotify now, uh, a brand that a lot of people recognize, not only from consumer, but also my customers, so it definitely makes my job a little bit easier. Best decade or so, I've been in more startup, you know, 200 person or less companies, so, a lot of uh, what I was doing out there was convincing people to make an investment in my company and then also my product. So that's, that's me. I run the Southwest out here for the, the sales team. Okay, well, I'm going to get a little deeper than that for him. He, his bio reads like a who's who of digital and cable networks. He's done work on uh, Machinima on YouTube, Machinima Xbox, Current TV, Current.com, Discovery, TLC, Animal Planet, Travel Channel, BBC America, Discovery Health, Hallmark Channel, Hallmark Movie Channel, HallmarkChannel.com, and Discovery.com. So there's a wide breadth there, sir. Some of those were companies that own multiple networks, so I didn't work for all those companies. <laughs> Although I have moved around a lot. So with that um, experience, Sean, is, is there a core principle that you brought to that company slate? Um, or did you have a specific approach for each entity? Um, at the core of what I do is a relationship sell. I think Elizabeth can speak to this as well from Twitter. As in our business, it's all about relationships and building those relationships. And over the last 17 years, you know, some of the people that I've worked with the, the day I started are people I'm still working with now, and they've changed roles in the industry. They might be at a different agency or they might be at a different client, but it's building that trust. Um, that trust is being a consultant. So providing value, right? So you're providing value not only for the product you're selling, but also not always pushing the product that your company's asking you to push, but to do it in kind of a more of a value exchange for them and being a consultant say, hey, you know, this time I don't think you guys should actually go for this product. Maybe this one makes more sense and this is why. So for me, it's all, all about building trust with the consumer. Um, and I'm sorry, for with our customer, which, uh, you know, translates into longstanding relationships. So. I've been in other industries, software, early in my career, where it was more, um, you know, you, you win that first sale and then you're on to the next and then, uh, you know, other people handle it, account managers handle it and they upsell. So that wasn't so much about building that relationship, it was about getting the sell. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Elizabeth. Hi, my name's Liz Prim. I currently run the National Automotive Business at Twitter. Uh, just down the, down the street. Uh, previous to Twitter, I was at Google and YouTube. Um, so I've been in the digital space for 12 years now um, on a ad sales capacity, various capacities, uh, mostly within automotive. So my question to you is, um, I'd like to focus, and, and again, this is a nice lead in from what, what Sean was saying. Um, I'd like to ask you a question about what you per personally perceive as mutual value what do both parties need to get out of that relationship? I think in terms of defining and identifying mutual value, it's really about solving a problem in a way that makes both parties feel like 
they've won at the end of the day. Um, similar to Sean, I think a lot of it, foundation, foundationally, a lot of what we do is based in relationships, but whether or not someone trusts me or doesn't trust me, um, speaking about customers, I have to be able to solve their problem such that at the end of the day, they know they can come back to me and get a POV or get my opinion on something. Um, and I know that when that happens, I've done something right. Excellent. Sean, this question is for you. Um, Spotify has over 50 million premium customers. Um, can you talk a little bit about what did it take to get there? And I'm hoping that I'm Captain, Captain Obvious, but once you've achieved that level, does it make network sales easier? Um, does that help, does that achievement help attract customers? Good question. I've been at the company six months, so I don't have all the answers. We've, we added over 1,600 employees last year, so grew our workforce by 50 or over 100%. Um, you know, we've, the app's been around for eight years, started in Stockholm, so there's been a lot of um, iterations of the app. Um, it's all about personalization for us. Um, we've done a lot of marketing or a lot of fun marketing using our data. I don't know if you guys saw it, and there was a big campaign in Q4 where we would have large billboards in different cities in America, and we would literally ask someone, you listen to Sorry 444 times on Valentine's Day. What are you sorry for? And that's, that's like our billboard. So for us, we, we sit on this treasure trove of data. We literally have a data on everything everyone does on our, on our platform. And you think about music consumption and what's changed. You know, five years ago, people were using Apple Music and downloading things on iTunes. Seven, eight years ago, people were still buying CDs and going to stores. All you had was purchase data. Now we have data on you know, every song, every listening habit on our platform. So we use that in everything we do our consumer experience, our marketing, our advertising, but also in you know, how we're trying to attract new customers. Um, for me and what I do, I sell on the, for the free platform, which is still about 70% of our user base. Um, and those 50 million paid subscribers allow me to have um, a much better user experience for my advertisers because we don't have to put a ton of ads on the platform. So that's definitely how it helps us. But we, we use our data to acquire those customers. Um, we do a lot of promotions. Um, you know, we're growing. We grew 40% year over year last year. So we're doing a lot of things right. It's, but for our, our platform, is all about personalization. It's all about customizing playlists. And you can literally pull up any artist on our platform, and you'll find every song, every album they've ever done. There's no other streaming service that can do that. So there's a lot of word of mouth that goes on with our service, and probably helped fuel our growth. So I think the lesson is here is get 50 million subscribers. It's going to make your job a lot easier. Okay, thank you for coming. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a good story, right? It is a good story. Um, okay, so this next question is for um, Liz, Sean, and Anil. What core data is important to you to do your job? Um, how are you collecting the data and from where? And have you ventured into things like data integration, uh, more advanced areas of analytics, uh, like predictive? Um, beyond that, just in, introduction prescriptive? I don't know if that's too complicated of a question. What data do you want to see? In the context of acquiring customers mm -hmm. or working with and customers? And retaining and all of it. Sure. Um, so similar to Spotify, we, we sit on a large amount of data. So um, we also have a data channel that we are starting to use to be smarter about how we can help our existing customers. Um, one of the stories that is my favorite is um, McDonald's had changed how they produced their fries for drive-through. And, uh, well, actually, the dramatic gasp is appropriate because 
um, what was happening is by the time you actually drove around the drive-through window to pick up your to-go order at McDonald's, the fries were actually noticeably soggier than whatever they were doing previous to this. And on Twitter, consumers were complaining about this. And we were actually, and I don't work with McDonald's, but our data channel team was actually able to go to McDonald's with this data and insight and say, hey, we think you might have a problem here. And this is what the data is showing us. And you know, you see a tweet or two and your, your customer, um, you know, your CRM team or your customer service team can address that on a one-off. But as an organization, when you can see massive amounts of data in aggregate, you can actually identify real business problems that, for the most part, brands themselves are really not structured to ingest. Um, and the, the end of the story is that I believe McDonald's actually changed their recipe back to what they were doing previously. Um, so we can't always identify very simplistic business challenges like that from data. It is very complicated and there's a lot to, to weed through. Um, but we try to use um, all of the conversations that happen on our platform to the tune of 500 million tweets every day to help our customers understand um, what's going on with their business and oftentimes that's a lens that they may not be seeing through their own owned channels. Um, so I'm in the business B2B space, right? so we'll talk a little bit about B2B and what's happening in that area and how is data impacting that. Um, how many of you have heard of uh, Salesforce.com? Yes? Uh, Eloqua? A couple of people. Marketo? A couple of people. All right. Good. So literally what's happening is the whole marketing landscape has just in the last, I'd say, five to seven years just drastically changed, right? Because it was all about let's invest into, and no offense, Google, Twitter, let's drive as much people to our website, and that's going to convert into revenue for us. That's going to create leads. Those leads we're going to give to the salespeople, and we're going to close deals out of those, right? Um, both of those, from a conversion perspective, actually fall at the bottom of the food chain of marketing activities. And so they're like, well, what's going on? Because we're spending so much money on all of these different things. How are we not driving the value that we thought we were going to drive? Because everybody is going to the web to find information. Everybody is looking for knowledge on Twitter or the different things. And so the problem was, what happens next? And so these marketing automation tools and CRM tools have literally come in and said, we need to nurture that client all the way through. Before, it was the salesperson's job to nurture that client. Except that salesperson was traditionally a person that had a relationship and a trust and was able to control that client. Today, that client can go to the web and get the answers to their questions that they're looking for. Like, how many times do we, when we want to buy something, or even when we go to the most trusted of all persons, our doctor, do we research what we have first before we go see them, right? And how likely are we to believe them if they're not spewing the same story that we just saw on the web? It's, it's that same philosophy that happened. And so in the B2B space, that transformation started marketing automation tools that said, let me chart out the attendee graph or the, the, uh, the uh, buyer's graph all the way through and let me pepper the right information along the path and then bring in the salesperson at the end, right? So that's a major transformation about how data has started to look at. Because now, 
I want to know, for instance, when David hit my website, how much time did he spend on my website, then when I sent him that email inviting him to an event, did he show up? How much time did he spend at my event? And then after that, did he go back to my website and then bring in the salesperson into it, right? And in the meantime, I've got thought leadership, I've got content, I've got all the other forms of marketing hitting that person at the right time at the right place to make sure when he's ready to buy that I'm there to sell him. Right? And that's kind of like the transformation. Sure. I mean, I touched on this earlier. Data is at the core of everything we do as a company. Um, for what I do, you know, we use our data to help build, you know, our, our marketing programs for our clients. We work, you know, we're in LA, so we do a lot of stuff with studios. So if we're going to target, you know, young teenage girls for a film like Everything Everything that we worked on recently, you know, we we identified the teen party playlist might be a good place for them to to sponsor. Um, you know, for for us, we can tell. You know what? What are the most popular music in any given city in the world based on our our data? So, for us, it's kind of as a sales team, we need to dig into our data to inform our our you know our our target or our consumer, depending on what the our actual RFP is as asking us to target. So we do a lot of digging on our own for our sales team, so specific to what I do, um, so we can help inform our consumers. Uh, our, I'm sorry, I keep saying consumers. Our our customers about you know how to target um, their audience on our platform. Um, so, but we also work with you know third-party companies as well, you know building audience segments, and you know we're not a cookie environment. We're a you know we're a an app environment, so it's more about the device IDs, and you know we're 100% logged in, authenticated user. So for us, there's a lot of people-based marketing, a lot of one-on-one -on -one type of interaction with our audience. Um, but it's for for us, we use data to help inform our our partners, our advertising partners, on what people are doing on the app, and then let's target them specifically. Um, with certain playlists or certain moments. So I could go on and on about data, but I'm going to leave it there. Did you want to weigh in on this? I mean, we're talking about the enterprise level here, but is there, okay, great. So I want to move to some subject specific for you. So um, we're going to talk about for a little bit with the role of neuroscience and neuromarketing in attracting customers. And before I met Anne, those words were not necessarily in my vocabulary. So, one more phrase for you. How does this tie into the lizard brain? Well, the lizard brain is the brain that triggers decisions. This is, this is very simplistic, um, but it works. Um, they now know why people buy and what what we normally do when we talk, when you're trying to sell this to someone, a lot of people talk about your service or they'll talk, about, they'll talk to the thinking brain. Our product is this, our product is that, and we do this. And, and the thinking brain, people will do what you're asking them to do. They will think. If you direct communication and content to the lizard brain, which is the brain that triggers all decisions from what you just had to drink to who you're going to marry, you will get a, a cascade of decisions. But in order to do that, you have to follow the, the rules of the lizard brain. And this is the ancient 450,000-year-old brain. It's our survival brain. And the rules are, and it, it does have rules, <laughs> they do work. Uh, what, you, what, what's in it for me is number one, because it's our survival brain. Uh, two is to show a large before and after. Uh, from you know, two, two million in the hole to seven million in the black in six, six months because it's a decision making, it's a decision maker. So you, you, it likes easy, easy decisions. You do not want this brain to think. 
uh, three would be street language. No one rolls over to their partner in the morning and says, gosh, I wish we had a leveraged progression plan for our liquefied asset base. <laughs> you know, if you do, I'd like to meet you. Um, you know, you roll over and say, can we afford Paris? And this brain does not like $50 words because it will stop to think you don't want it to, you don't want to go into the thinking brain. You want to stay there. Because another thing is it has the attention span of eight seconds. And it will go on hibernate in eight seconds. The fourth rule is um, a story, but a special kind of story. Uh, the famous late uh, Elmore Leonard that was asked, why are you so successful? And he said, well, I, as when I write, I leave out the parts readers tend to skip. This brain is exactly the same. Likes beginning and beginnings and endings. Um, no fluff. Uh, also, it's visual. We tend to be visual buyers. Uh, so it, you, it needs to be visual, which is why video is so successful. And also emotion. Emotion is the only delivery system that gets the message back to that brain. And I was working with a group of attorneys, and the guy said, I've spent 27 years not being emotional. And I said, well, you don't have to be emotional. They do. You have to raise some form of emotion. And, and anticipation floods the brain with dopamine, desire, curiosity. You know, gosh, could they do that for me? doesn't matter. Something that gets the message back there. And I personally would add, use numbers, because numbers are pixie dust when it comes to reaching the lizard brain. Hey, Anne, what club were you at last night? I saw a little thing on your wrist. <laughs> you out clubbing? Very special club, actually. <laughs> lizard club? Lizard. Lizard, lizard club, Using yes. the lizard brain, yeah, right? using the lizard brain, yeah. I was. Why are numbers important? Numbers are so useful. I, may I, I'm going to read a before and after Absolutely. thing. Okay. Um, I always bring the, app, the before with me because I can never remember it. So many people come to me with, with stories like this. And I used introductions, although this is used across any content platform, online or off. Uh, a woman came to me and said, I have an event planning company, and I'm, you know, I'm just not getting any, haven't gotten a client in six months. What can I do? And I said, what do you do? Look, can I raise your hands when you're bored? She said, I own an event planning company. We are a full-service corporate communications agency producing awards, galas, incentive programs, entertainment, <laughs> productions, what goes on, okay? And I said, well, what do, you, what do you do? You know, and I said, you save money for people. And they go, yeah, we, yeah, we always save money, which is fascinating because we all bury our leads. So she ended up saying, uh, I'm, I own an event planning company. All my clients save up to 150000 or make up to 150000 in new money on every event we produce for them. And she sent me an email because the first time she used that, she got a $100,000 contract before she sat down. This works. But do you see the numbers? Do you see the gap? And I have one more example. If it, OK, I'll, I'll show you. I'll, if, I hope this, I'll show you the lizard brain in action. Here's my doctor. My doctor's fantastic. He's amazing. I mean, I think he saved my husband's life. You have to meet him. You have to get on his list. He's just incredible. I, I can't believe this man, his bedside manner. Okay, my surgeon has performed over 5,000 operations. He invented five of the techniques now used by doctors in 17 countries. Surgeons fly in from three continents to see him. He has a six-month waiting list. Who would you trust to operate on you? Why? Sounds more impressive. Aside from just the emotion. The num Do you see the gravity that the numbers give it? Numbers raise anxiety. They, cause emo they have emotion. They show the before and after. And they're a great hook. They're a fabulous hook. Okay, so getting back to numbers. If you have eight seconds in person, how much time do you have online to make an impression? If you Google it, you'll get up to 10 seconds. I have uh, very good friends who are neuro mar internet marketers who say you have 1.8 seconds. 
So when I, when I talk, when I, in, in a lot of my talks, I end with 30 homepages. And I say, okay, just tell me, is this homepage about us or them? Because it should be, of course, about us. And I speed up the slides because you can tell in one second, us, them, us, them. That's how fast we know. Okay, um, so I'm going to switch gears for just a little bit. I want to, we have some enterprise level folks on this panel, and I would just like to touch on um, the differences between enterprise sales and enterprise relationships with small business. Can you speak to it to someone of what those differences may be? You asking me? Sure. So in my experience, in my last company, I was at a programmatic video company where we did do a lot of, you know, mid-tier, you know, tier two type of business, so a lot of mid-sized mid businesses. I think money is very much more important to them than probably the large advertisers, um, you know, because it's probably their own business that they own, right? Or they're, maybe they're just expanding and there's maybe 20 employees there was five employees five years ago um you know so they care much more about that dollar so they tend to take up a lot more of my sales team's time so you know you have to really i think qualify them very quickly if it's going to be worth your while and worth your while meaning it's going to grow uh, so you know i try to tell my team to really qualify any lead especially a mid-tier lead really quickly and if you don't feel like it's going to pay off then move on just move on um, I, I don't, but you know, we're dealing with a lot of national right now in, in what I'm doing. So I don't know if you want to speak to, to enterprise. So, um, selling to small and medium businesses, I actually love selling to small businesses, right? Because you're dealing with somebody senior in the organization that gets it, that cares about the organization. And frankly, change management is not an issue. It's more about making a rational argument to them about how this is going to benefit their business or how is this going to help them with their bottom line or their top line. That's what they care about. And when they see it, they're like, let's make the change. If I have the time right now, I'll make the change. In an enterprise, in a complex enterprise sales, your biggest adversary is change management because people thrive on the status quo. If I'm working and I'm a mid-level manager at a big company, the last thing I want to do is rock the boat and get fired, right? What is my incentive, what's in it for me, to go take this on, make a change, and then get the same salary? Why? Right? It doesn't. Like, those people that you find, in fact, when in a complex enterprise sale, we look for the adversarial person in that organization because there is that tension. There is that person that is saying, I want to be the non-conformist. I want to be the person that wants to make a change if it is right, and I'm willing to bet my job on it. And so that's where the big benefit is. And in an enterprise complex sale, because you need that person to convert, and then take that topic and convert many in the organization. So it's a much, that's why it's a complex sale, right? That's why it changes quite a bit in terms of how you approach it. Liz, did you want to weigh in on this at all? No, I'm okay. going to pass. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this is for the whole panel. Um, and I want to talk just a little bit about developing successful messaging for your value proposition. So what must you get right in your messaging to make it work?
Uh, well, I would go back to what Anne mentioned in terms of your value prop. You have to answer the what's in it for me. And I think so often the first slide in our presentations are about us and when we were founded and how many employees we have and where our offices are and none of our clients care about that or prospective clients care about that really. Um, they care if we can solve their problems and that could be big or small. So I think as it pertains to establishing a value prop, answering the what's in it for me is absolutely paramount. Yeah, I agree with that, um, especially with your evolution. I'm sure in your early days, you guys were doing a lot of explaining about who you are, how you got there, um, how many employees you have, you know, you know, basically you're selling your company before you can even sell your product. Um, and I've done a lot of that in the last 10 years. I'm not doing that now, which is nice. Um, one of the things that we're doing is really trying, especially in the first, I'd say, 10 minutes of our presentations is really trying to create um, a story about our consumer and how that consumer can relate um, to the advertiser, you know, really telling a story about how someone literally wakes up every day with our app and starts listening to music when they're in the shower, when they're getting ready, when they're driving into work, when they stopped at Starbucks, the music on at Starbucks is, is Spotify or powered by Spotify. So, you know, the average user on the platform is on for over two hours a day, which is pretty incredible. Um, and they're very engaged in the app. So it's really about painting, for us, it's painting that visual of the consumer experience and then matching that to what we can do to help the advertiser obviously get their message out in front of that consumer at all these different touch points throughout the day. So for me, that this, this role has been really fun because it's really about storytelling rather than you know, telling a story about the company. It's really about the consumer and then kind of matching that. And then obviously la later in our, our presentation, we would maybe have some specific ideas or case studies that would build upon what we've been talking about. But I think, you know, I think anyone can learn from that. Like, you know, you get this short window with a, with a potential customer. You know, obviously you've done your research on, you hopefully you've done your research on what their business is and what their, their goals are, what their most immediate needs are. Um, there's plenty of data out there online and you know, you can ask them before you come in even as well. Um, so hopefully you're matching what your value prop is to what they're, they're trying to solve, right? Before you go in there. But I think it's really about, you know, building, you know, creating a story um, that they'll leave with and they'll remember because they're getting pitched all the time. Um, you know, if they're, they're meeting you, they're meeting everyone, you know, we're in the same business. So we cross paths a lot. We have a lot of, you know, common clients. Um, I don't know how many times a day our, our marketing clients are getting pitched by all these new startups that are coming along and all the big boys that they're spending their money with. Um, you know, so you have to make a mark and how are you going to make your mark? Well, it's going to, you're going to tell a good story that they're going to remember, right? Not just a bunch of numbers on a screen or, you know, talking about your company. You have to actually leave something that they're going to take. So try to create something memorable as well. And I think, you know, good storytelling, however you build it in your presentation for whatever you do, you know. And practice on your loved ones. I do that all the time. You know, for me, I always sell with um, thinking that I'm presenting to my best friend or a really close friend of mine. And if I can sell to him, I can sell to anyone. You know, so. So mostly over beers. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I think from a brand perspective, uh, I'm a big believer in uh, Simon Sinek's uh, power of why. Uh, I think that concept about why your business or why it makes sense for them uh, at an organizational level is so crucial. And I think a lot of us forget how to do that. Uh, we focus on what we do. We focus sometimes on how we do it. We rarely focus on why we do it. And 
it's also amazing from a brand perspective when you do that and you are able to resonate that message within your customer when they view you. Uh, and I think that's very, very important. From an individual sale and presentation perspective, uh, in, in, in the software space, and especially in the B2B software space, uh, it's a very, very competitive marketplace, right? Uh, and so part of what we focus on uh, is defining that unique perspective that revises their thought process about their pain point. So it's, um, it's not easy, uh, and it's, it's not, uh, most salespeople have a tough time doing this, but the people that I've seen very successful at it are really coming in there and saying, let me learn about that person's business to the point where I can define a unique perspective that they haven't really thought about. Because I look at it as pain point selling and a lot of those things are, are processes that have pretty much become standardized because those pain points are already on the website or pain points are already on, uh, on the internet and people already know those pain points. If they already know the pain points, then they've already figured out their own version of their solutions for that. So you're coming there and saying, listen, hey, let me tell you the solution. They're like, well, I already got the solution. I, I figured it out. So just tell me what your price is. And nobody wants to be in that situation. Yeah, I agree with Liz about what's in it for me, obviously, and um, with Sean about sto stories are so crucial. And what we don't we forget is that we, you don't have a lot of time. Um, I focus on the lizard brain because it works, and it, you literally do have eight seconds. And the reason stories are so important to me is because you want to get people out of the critical thinking brain, um, and you want to place them in the creative play area and keep them there. And what Anil referred to earlier, I think, was a series of, you want to reach them at every marketing touch point until they are ready to buy. And if you can use this kind of communication at all those marketing touch points, you will trigger a series or a cascade of decisions that move the sale along, uh, sometimes often faster. So we've touched on a couple of points that I want to... We'll pick it up there for part two in this discussion. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe. You've been listening to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the American Marketing Association's Los Angeles chapter and to find out about upcoming events, follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This podcast was produced by Joel Metzger and Icebox Logic.